Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Today we are going to be in the Torah reading called Tetzaveh, or You Shall Command. It covers Exodus chapter 27, starting verse 20, and chugs through chapter 30, verse 10. Now, one of the, the key items to consider here is actually what was just in that blessing there about planted the Torah of truth within our midst, because this is actually one of the key parts of what the tabernacle is all about. And I'm sure in hearing it and reading it, you folks started weeping, right? Were you weeping? You're weeping? Uh, a comment over here? I wouldn't say weeping necessarily, but I have a question. I don't know the answer to this because I've never thought about it until, I was, until you were reading through this whole process. So I noted, that, I'm sure it's covered, covered or occurred to many of you, but it just never dawned on me, that the description given for the outfit that Aaron has, all the various accoutrements and his priests, and all the sons, and yada, yada, yada. Why is it that in, and I, you, you, I don't know if you have the answer this or not, maybe some, somebody here might have the answer, I'm not sure. Why is that in the vast majority of, uh, of religions today, whether it be Muslim, Jewish, Christian, Catholic, whatever, with the distinguished exception of Hindu, they all dress in all black. All the priests dress in black. Their outfits have to be black. It doesn't matter if a Jewish rabbi or a priest, they're all black. I, mean, I realize the Pope doesn't dress in black often, though sometimes he does. But black is the only color they all dress in. I don't understand why. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's, if it's, if it's the Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, all the their highest officials all from head to toe must be all black. Where did they get that from? I just don't know. I, I know Hindu doesn't. They're high priests. They all dress in some orange color or some bright color. But I have no idea. I mean, the Bible, I can't think of anything in the, in the tabernacle or, to, or regarding the high priests or regarding his, his sons or anything's black. Nothing's black. <laughs> They're all colorful, but there's no black anywhere. Where'd the black come from? Oh. Now, it is interesting in uh, Western slash uh, biblical culture that the idea of black is also associated with night and darkness and death. Very, very interesting. Because when you see like in Eastern culture, what do they wear in ceremonies? White. And what is white associated in Asian culture? Death. So uh, it's very interesting when you, when you see a uh, modern Korean wedding where the bride is decked out in white, which is what you wear at a funeral in traditional uh, Korean culture. At a traditional Korean wedding, you'll see them wearing extremely loud, bright colors. Red is usually because that is luck. That is fortune. That is uh, a good favor. Um, so 
is very interesting because you have uh, a lot of official events, like uh, a lot of their ancestral stuff they'll do, decked out white, white hats, white clothes, everything white. So very, a very interesting observation. So interesting picture with that. Uh, yes, Larry. Okay. Are, are groups that are supposed to be descended from, uh, the, from Judaism and, and white in Judaism is, a, is the bride's, the, the color for, yes. for, for weddings. Exactly. And also for purity and so forth. Right. Yes. So it's interesting that they, what he said is, I never thought of it either before. Yeah, it is, it, it is quite an interesting observation with that. Where do they get that? Because actually, uh, black is absence of color. Yes. Absence of color. Absence now, of color, absence of light. Right. Now, it will be interesting to, to kind of put a little bug in my ear, but um, um, I remember something. I'm going to have to confirm it, but I think it may have to do something about mourning or humility or um, humiliation. I have to check into that because I seem to recall something rattling back in my head related to... Oh, and Alex has got his hand up. Yes, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I would weigh in and say I, I recall something about the subduing of the flesh and the human, the human side of us. And of course, I have an issue with that because I guess you become an instant holy man. And, and I guess those of us who don't, uh, who can still feel the 14-year-old kid in us uh, nearly 24 hours a day if we want to recall him up, I guess we're never going to be that person in black, <laughs> you know, but, but those, the holy men, you know, they're, they're subdued. So uh, that's yeah, that's my take. Uh, that's interesting. Yes. Uh, yes, Carrie, go go ahead. I have not studied this at all, but I think it's a fun question. And what came to my mind was the morning as well, and especially considering what we were reading through. I would be curious to find out, at least with Judaism, if it has something to do with the fact that there isn't a temple right now. Like, if there was, I maybe they'd be wearing something else. Right. It's all all white tzitzit. Because you don't have the uh, the official tech led until recently, so it's an interesting observation. Okay, something to to put into the study more on it group. But actually, it uh, kind of gets into where we'll probably be spending most of our time today, because we'll be uh, focusing mostly on the Hafsara reading today. But just a quick little refresher before we launch off into that is a little reminder of, you know, why are we here, what the tabernacle is really all about. And a passage here from this particular section, Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to all that I am about to show you. Going as a pattern of the tabernacle and a pattern of all its furniture just so you shall construct it. So that's launched us into this section where we've been going on the last two. We started last week with the last Torah section. We're continuing on with this one about the construction of it. Now, that is where it's framed, that this sanctuary is for the dwelling of the Lord amongst the people. And a critical thing that's been emphasized a number of times here, and we'll keep getting emphasized as we go through these various descriptions, as build it according to the pattern shown on the mountain. That this is a copy, 
This is a facsimile of it. Now, does it mean a mirror copy, as some translations will put the um, passages that you'll see referenced in Paul's writings? Well, they'll say that these things are a copy or a shadow. Some of the translations will put a mirror shadow to lessen it. But this, just remember this, this is a copy, a representation of the things that are happening in heaven. Because people will often say, well, how could you bring in another temple? How could you restart the, the sacrifices? Because what about Yeshua? And the question is, well, yes. Well, what about Yeshua? I, I think Hebrews makes that pretty clear, is that he was the fullness of what all of these things were representing. That the, it's not like plan A God, plan B God, and then going back to plan A. No, it's been the same plan all along. And what we are seeing here are representations of the things that are happening on in heaven. And also, with as this passage here in Exodus 25 reminds us, that these is about the dwelling place of God among mankind. And that is what heaven's goal is here for this. So with the pattern that is going to be happening in all of this, it is to emphasize that fact, is that the desire of God is to dwell amongst mankind. So then when you see, as we get, we're going to be focusing mostly on the Haftarah section in Ezekiel today, but that is going to be jumping into a section there talking about what's commonly referred to as the third temple or the next temple. And when you then fast forward that even further into the future, like in Revelation 21 and chapter 22, what do you see about there? The city of God. There is no temple. Why is that? Because the dwelling place of God is there. That is why there is no temple. There is no need for a facsimile anymore. Because when the fullness is revealed, there is no need for a copy, a thing to remind you of it, because, hello, the Lord is truly dwelling amongst this people. So that is one thing to always remember with all of these things that move along is that these are to point you to the things that are happening in heaven and the things that heaven is doing on earth. Yes. You have an interesting question, at least to my head at least. So, so the temple, I get that. So when God's on earth, the temple is not to say a functional, it has no purpose because he's there, he's here. Um, and most of the furniture items in the temple also have no function. But the altar of incense, which is prayers, even when God's here on earth, prayers still go up. So I'm curious because it, 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 I don't recall, forgive me, I don't, I don't have all the story of the Bible memorized in this capacity, but how often incense is used is very frequent when it discusses when you're in the presence of God. It's very, very I don't remember each instance, but there's a, quite a few number of them that discusses this topic about in the cloud of incense being in front of God while you're there talking to him. And uh, it, the high priest in particular has to deal with that. But, uh, and also incense burned every, every day, every morning and every evening. Incense is burned for always, continues to going up for prayers. So when God's on earth, the prayers don't stop though. 
they still continue. If I'm in Timbuktu, nowhere, South Africa, I don't, that's actually I think it's a real place, Timbuktu. Anyway, <laughs> somewhere, I think there's a Timbuktu somewhere in Africa. Um, if, I'm, if I'm down there, I'm not physically in the presence of God in the form like here in, or not here, but in Jerusalem where he's going to be dwelling at. My prayers are still legitimate things that I still offer. So in the capacity of all the different furniture items, it, I can see the fact they have no real function, per se, when God's presence is around. But the altar of incense still appears to have one. The prayers still have to continuously go up because, I mean, I mean we're not all be spirit at the same time kind of thing. So I'm curious how that fashion looks. Perhaps. And we'll be taking a look at that briefly before we launch into the Haftarah section. Perhaps it's because of where it's located. What's it sitting in front of? The veil, which blocks you from going to the ark in the presence. So one of the things is that when there is a transformation of humankind, that there no longer needs to be that kind of barrier anymore, then it is as if, okay, your prayers are your uh, dealing with the presence of God directly. There's not that kind of uh, the veil anymore, which is actually a big topic of the book of Hebrews, where you get into chapter 9, and it's saying that there has been a way that's made through the veil, through the blood of Yeshua, so that we can go through with confidence, not because of what we did, but because of what he did and what heaven is doing with all of this. So thus, when the whole thing is completed and the dwelling place really is with mankind, there needs to be no longer any barrier or protection, really, for the people. That's actually kind of one of the things we'll be looking at also, that, uh, that, that connection, however that happens, mean uh, more directly and, and saying that, you know, yes, our, our prayers are going up, but it is no longer like in the garden anymore where you're just talking when it talks about the Lord walking through the garden and directing, directly communicating with the first couple. So that maybe is a place where, you know, you're not having any sort of barrier or you could say really protection for the sake of mankind uh, from the presence of God. Perhaps, perhaps maybe that is uh, one of the, the pictures there. But um, just a couple of other, th- other notes in here. Uh, passage here from Exodus 29 about the tabernacle, that I may dwell among the sons of Israel and be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Mitzrayim, out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them, I am the Lord their God. So another reminder of the presence of God, who is the one who is, who is uh, with you, the one who delivered you, the one who created you. And uh, lastly here, with this section on Exodus uh, chapter 34, where a reminder about how the things of the tabernacle emphasize the name of the Lord. And the name of the Lord is, again, the reputation of the Lord, which the, uh, the Lord then reveals to Moshe when he says, show me your glory, show me your, your weight. What is it that is uh, the... <laughs> 
We, we talk a lot about gravitas and people having gravitas, the things that attract other people to them. So this is the attraction, the calling card, the reputation, the character of the Lord expressed here in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. Now this is important because of where we're going to go in uh, the Haftarah section and the historical context of what was happening at the time of the Haftarah and where Ezekiel was writing to, what period in Israel's history he was writing to. Now, this is the character of the Lord. So, this is a character that we should be aspiring to. Because one of the things they talk about, we talk about the writings of Paul, and he talks about the characteristics of the fruits of the Spirit. Basically, what is it with the Spirit of God living within you? What fruit is going to come from that tree, the thing that the Lord has planted within you by putting the Lord's Spirit within you? What is going to grow from that? What characteristics? Well, here we're seeing here revealed to Moshe, these are the kinds of characteristics that should be coming out of us with our connection to the Lord and our relationship with the Lord. So, when I was asking before, I was like, well, did you weep when we just read this? And it sounded like a, you know, a fashion designer and architectural digest uh, article here about the description of the clothing of the high priest and the description of the finishing up of the tabernacle with the altar of incense. But in that, these are talking about the things that are happening in heaven and the characteristics and happening um the things that are happening in heaven so when we just look back at the tabernacle itself just an an overview of the tabernacle here we're we're uh, coming into the finish of the descriptions of how the tabernacle is put together and with the various elements where you start from the outside of the gate and you move in with the courtyard and you have the altar where the burnt offerings are going up on the altar and then you have the basin where the priests are washing um you could say <laughs> very interesting thing today about washing you know when you are going to be entering in to the holy place and when you get into the holy place you have in there the lampstand, the menorah, and opposite the menorah, you've got the table of bread, called the table of showbread, or the bread of the presence, the bread of even the bread of the panim, or the bread of the faces of the, the presence there. And you see that reflected later that these 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So, We've talked a lot in times past about the seven uh, lamps of the menorah, 
representing the the eyes of God, seeing what's going on, shining light upon it, but looking upon the bread, what the body of the people of Israel and the twelve tribes. What are the twelve tribes doing? So when we see the the representation of the various tribes as they're camped around the tabernacle, see that the 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 various families of of Levi are camped around in between the various tribes around the outside. So you've got this buffer zone between where the the tribes are out on the edges and where they're camped in various places north, south, east, and west of the tabernacle and the tabernacle itself. And what is the things that the, the priesthood, the Kohanim, are tasked with, with being there between the people and the tabernacle? What are they tasked with? Shamar, to guard, to basically be there to remind the people, hey, you know, this is not just the party tent here. You just waltz in anytime you want and, you know, pop open a brewski. This is a very special place. A very special resident is coming to dwell amongst the people here. So uh, be very careful of, of what you're doing. Well, you know, one of the observations that, that someone has made about this is that this is something, a pattern that we've seen before. This layout that we have in the tabernacle with the buffer zones, who's allowed in, where, is something that we've seen before. And one of the places that we've seen before is Sinai. And one observation that's been made over the centuries about this is that Remember the, what we read about just a few chapters earlier in Exodus, there, chapter 20, chapter 21, about the smoke, the, the presence of the Lord coming down upon the mountain with the smoke and the trumpets and the thunder, and the people were terrified. <laughs> and what did they say? They, they said a few things to, to Moshe to say to the Lord about uh, what they were experiencing. What was it? A couple of the things, the key things that they were said. You talked to him. But then when you had the ten words, the ten commandments presented, and then we see here uh, when we went through the section on Mishpatim about the various laws, the book of the covenant that's included in that section, what did they say after that? Everything you said, we will do. So you've got this fantastic experience that they have trumpets and thunder and lightning and this terrible experience that they had and they were terrified of it. And you also had a connection with the one who took them out, the one who promised that he was going to take them out of the house of bondage, out of the house of Mitzrayim and take them to the mountain take them to the mountain for a really big introduction. So in a sense, the experience, what happened there at Sinai is something that did not stay at Sinai and wasn't meant to stay at Sinai. So one of the appropriate, appropriately enough is when Moshe was spending time up on the mountain, he said, okay, take the pattern that you've been revealed to it and these symbols and things, build these things, 
And this is something that's going to travel with you. So in a very interesting sense, we've seen the, the picture that was presented, and we're going to get it into our next reading where you see this uh, a huge wrench that gets thrown into the relationship between the people and God with the golden calf. But then you see after that where they are truly weeping because you see an experience where it's like there is going to be a separation. It's like, I'm not going to dwell with you people. But then you see um, one promise and one prayer that comes out of it. Where it's like the prayer that happens when the cloud lifts up from the tabernacle. And you're like praying for, oh, please return. And then when you stop and the cloud is uh, coming back down on the tabernacle, you, you pray again, thank you for the uh, return of your presence. Because that is what the key thing you want. You want that experience that you had with Sinai of the Lord saying, hey, you matter. I want to introduce myself to you. And then now take this with you. Take this experience with you. But likewise with Sinai and with the tabernacle, you may notice that there are some interesting parallels here. This is just a, a representation here. Uh, the, the rectangles on the right there is the proportions of the tabernacle. The, the green area in this diagram is the courtyard. The Yellow is the um, the Hakodesh or the holy place, and the blue part is the uh, the Kadosh Hakadashim or the holy of holies. So, thus, and what you're seeing here is a very similar thing. Because remember, around the mountain where the people were said, "Hey, prepare yourself for three days," because on the third day. But it's, it's not going to be like a, you know, you're going to rush the stage, so to speak, and jump up on the stage. No, there was the barriers to put around the mountain. Hey, we're not going to have any looky-loos. This is not, you know, selfie time up around the mountain. This is an experience with the creator of heaven and earth, the one who delivered you out of the house of slavery into freedom. So... Thus, just like with at Sinai, where you had the barrier around the mountain where the people could go up and no further, so like in the tabernacle where you have those people who have gone through the uh, purification to go to into the tabernacle, into the courtyard, but they don't go any further than that. There is a barrier where they don't go any further into the tabernacle and what happens within. And just so, like you had at the mountain where you had those uh, the barrier put up and some could pass on, the priests, and as we read also, the elders of Israel went up a little bit to have an experience with God, but they didn't go all the way up. There was only one who went all the way up. And when the cloud came down, you know, it's like he was waiting there and then the voice came out, hey, come into the cloud. Come into the cloud. And likewise with Moshe, Moshe, as we just read in this section, and there's uh, a few other sections as well, 
when you see it when we get to the end of Exodus, when the cloud moves in and is enveloping the, the tabernacle, everybody, including Moshe, has to get out. But then we start with Vayikra, Leviticus. The first verse is like he called out from the tabernacle. And thus you see a few uh, sections that we saw once in this and uh, once even before that where this meeting and this communication that was going on with the Lord was happening with Moshe, but Aharon, he only could go in once a year, and we learn about that when we get to Leviticus and uh, what, what, what happened uh, with that. Yes, Daniel. Um, you're going through this you know, diagram you have up here. Uh, it brought to my attention the, the uh, example Messiah had given was guarding that the, uh, the owner or the shepherd of the house, yeah. a shepherd, goes into the doorway. And the thieves go in any other method they get a hold, they get in, to get inside of. And uh, in this instance, you have obviously, and I, I can't speak to how, uh, no, nobody could actually, how God entered or exited his, his tabernacle. It's his business. But as far as uh, the, the priests and Moses, Aaron, high priest, of course, Moses, could enter for the most part, anywhere along there, wherever they wanted, but there was obviously limited access up top or into the holy, holy area. Uh, but they entered into the doorway at all times, which is interesting because God made it a point to make everything fabric. So, you, I mean, fabric is fabric. Uh, a small knife can get you through, get through your fabric pretty easily without any much effort. But that's where thieves enter. And so, in, in, in recall, if I recall correctly, it, I don't remember all the details, but when the veil was torn, Messiah had died. Of course, I mean, the doorway has been kicked open. And of course, the main big heavy doors were also permanently stuck open. They couldn't really close them out. They couldn't get them closed. Um, so in, indicating that the individual people could enter in, could enter in uh, through the main doorway. The doorway was basically kicked open for all of them, right? And so the principle here, that I, as far as this diagram d- demonstrates, is that the veil, I don't recall, okay, I know there are three entryways, or three, 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 three veils, three doors in the tabernacle. There's the main one that covers the green area, there's a part that covers the yellow, and there's a part that covers the holy, holy area. So there's three of them. And I, I don't recall which, which veil was torn. I think it was the one between the, 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 the holiest area. I think that's when it was called, was the torn. Right, because... As opposed to the one that has the... The, high, the, the, the regular priests could enter. Right, because uh, you know, at the time of the, at the first century, and you go through like Josephus mm-hmm. descriptions of the temple and such, by that time, and probably even with maybe the first and even uh, the first Solomon iteration said, of the second yeah. temple, yeah. They, they were, were pretty much stone except yeah. for that veil. That was still, still fabric. That veil. was still okay. maintained like so that. So the doors being stuck open, they couldn't close them. Well, they could still, I mean, but they naturally would open up on their own now. Yeah. Um, they're being left open. So God allows the doorways completely open. It, the implication, of course, is that all people have access. That's the implication. I'm not saying all people do have access, but that the implica- it implies all people have access to it, which is how you know, Christianity typically runs it with it, which is fine. Um, but it, is, it does make a curiosity. So if the, the shepherd enters the doorway and all people have access to the open doorway, there's no longer required to go the thief, no, 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 no sideways, no, no, no secret way of trying to sneak in kind of thing. Uh, that it implies that, well, if the doorway is kicked open, is it isolated to strictly the shepherd? Meaning, um, 
the high priest is supposed to be the one who goes into the holiest, holiest, holiest of holy areas. But the doorways are kicked open, the veil's gone. What prevents an ordinary person from going through? Is there a limitation anymore? Metaphorically speaking, I'm not, I'm not, because physically, because in my worldview, I could be wrong, but if something is spiritually true, it's physically true as well. They, 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 they tie to each other. What you bring up is a very interesting point because that is actually um, a lot of what the Haftarah section focuses on and what one of the key heart problems was of the people at the particular time that uh, the prophet was, was writing to. Yeah, you, you, do, you do bring that to an interesting point um, of, <laughs> of uh, what had happened to the insides of the people and how they were treating the dwelling place of the Lord. So, yeah, that's a, a very interesting point. Just finishing up a little bit on, on this, with this element of uh, the Mishkan or the, the, I'm sorry, Tammy, before we go on, go ahead. Yeah, actually, I was, I was studying a little bit about the, the Torah lesson from Chabad, and one of the Chabad commentators makes an interesting point about that. We were talking about the Shamar, the, 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 the Levites, the non-Kohenites, but the Levites being out on the, that edge of the temple and all that. And by the days of the temple, it says they're the Halavi people, not including the Kohenim, were responsible for the maintenance of the temple and the obeyance of the temple laws and upkeep. And then he says there were actually examples of the temple guard, the Levites, executing Kohanim for dis- disrespecting the temple and or the Holy of Holies. All the Kohen Hagadol were well aware that either God would execute them in the sanctum or the Leviim would do so if they had not obeyed the laws in his presence. It is said that if the Kohen Hagadol did not wear the appropriate clothing and behave the appropriate way at the seat of God, um, that the God would kill him immediately. So those temple guards, you think about it like in Yeshua's day when he talks about the temple guards and how they came out and arrested him and all that. They had the authority. That was the only authority that the Romans gave the Jews in terms of executing people is if, if a Gentile desecrated the temple. Those temple guards who were Levites had the authority to execute immediately any Gentile who went beyond their Area. Which is which is a very interesting subtext because we see a lot of that interplay going on with the gospels, you know. And you're wondering, well, were these temple guards and whatever they they keep summoning around? But you see what um, the ones that were supposed to be it actually bring, touches on the the Haftarah section too, because in, when we see in the gospels the ones that were supposed to be protecting the sanctity of what the priesthood was doing and stuff were the lapdogs of the priesthood and the corrupt priesthood at the time. So the ones that were supposed to be, you know, basically keeping the priesthood accountable were actually just basically under the thumb on, you could say, the payroll of the corrupt priesthood at that particular time period. So that's a, that's a very interesting, interesting point. So... Um, one of the things that uh, another observation that was was noted when we say about the various things that are being uh, represented in the various furniture of the Mishkan of the of the tabernacle and what the the patterns are we we already have seen this description that is given to Moshe in later chapter in chapter thirty four of Exodus about what the character of the Lord is and the 
name of the Lord fully represented with the character of, of the Lord. So with some of the furniture, and we've talked about this already when we were talking about last time around with the, the covering on the Ark of the Testimony and what was at the heart of the Ark of the Testimony being the tablets of the Testimony and the various parts that were in that. And then you had the dwelling place was appearing between the Cherevim on the cover that was on top of the Ark. And the picture of all that pointing us to what? Pointing us back to the covering that God does. And the picture of atonement. You know, the kaparet or the cover should point us back to Yom HaKippurim or Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So one of the things with the Ark of the Testimony can point us to is the words, the law, the testimony of the Lord, the altar of incense being with the uh, prayer and the actions of the Lord, and the you could you have the um, the menorah and the um, the menorah and the table of showbread, the table of bread there, about what? The actions of the Lord. You see, you have the eyes of the Lord with the menorah on the bread of Israel, the bread of the presence. So looking at the actions to see what is going on. And then with the altar on the outside uh, being a representation of repentance, because when we get into the book of Ayikra or Leviticus, one thing that we, we see in this process of the karban, the thing that approaches, is that it has to, you could say, get transformed through the altar and have this meeting there at the altar before it and the remnants of it can move any further. So thus, when you are coming in and approaching toward God, why are you there? Are you there to get your ticket punched? Or are you trying to return? And we see that the prophets talk a lot about, you know, I hate your sacrifices and speaking against the appointed times and, appoint, and against the sacrifices. Why? Because he hates the sacrifices? No, because the heart of the people was far from the Lord. They weren't coming to the altar with their offering to return. I mean, Yeshua brings up a very similar point about repentance. Because if you're going there with an altar for a, uh, to have a shalom offering to say, hey, we're at peace, yet you still have some problem with somebody else, um, no, you're not actually returning to the Lord. You're still holding something back from the Lord that is out of alignment with the character of the Lord we just read about earlier in, in Exodus 34. You know, are you long-suffering? Are you gracious? Are you expressing this to other people? Well, you need to take care of these things with other people and then come and deal with the Lord. So one of the things that some people have noticed is that with these elements that the furniture that we have in the, the holy place and the most holy place 
is that you can almost say, and some people will say, yeah, this is um, bordering on being um, challenging, is that, yeah, and this was actually brought up by, by a uh, Jew, is that it does sort of have a lot of sensory elements to it, being that the words of the Lord are like the mind of the Lord. So it's like, would you like to know what the Lord thinks? Well, he's told you. He's told you, oh man, what is good. So you want to know what is good? You keep asking, well, Lord, what, what do you want? Well, he's told you what your character should be. So they've also talked about with the incense. We talked about prayers that's expressed in the book of Revelation that the altar is a good representation of the prayers of the saints, the holy ones going up to God. And that prayer being something of closeness together. And the things of the eyes of the Lord, what is the Lord seeing in the world? Is he seeing actions that are going in the right direction or actions that are going in the wrong direction? And what is the Lord consuming that goes up in smoke? So it's very interesting that you would have a mainstream Jew bring this observation out because that has been a big question. You'll see a lot of various sages over the centuries uh, wonder, well, what is all this furniture all about? And looking back to what is revealed there, that this is about the uh, God dwelling and wanting to dwell amongst mankind. So it is, how do we bring our alignment of ourselves? You know, do we think the kinds of thoughts that are inscribed there in the Ark of the Testimony, you know, is the things that we smell that are sweet, is it related to prayer, which is pouring out yourself? Is that what we think is sweet? Are we over there just cramming, you know, the um, proverbial donuts into our face, which don't really accomplish anything? They smell good, but what do they do for us long-term? And also, what is it that we are seeing in the world? When the Lord looks at us, what does the Lord see? When we look at the world, do we see the world the way the Lord does? Or do we see the world the way we want to see it? Because, I mean, we see examples throughout the uh, throughout the. Throughout the word, I mean, you have the example of, um, of Samson. You know, you would see Samson's life, if you were to take like a snapshot of Samson's life, as he was, you know, dallying with Delilah, you would think, wow, what a lost cause. Okay, write him off. Well, that was not how he finished his life. That was not the end of it. So if uh, we were to see the Apostle Paul, the, with the last snapshot that the Stephan had when he was assassinated, what picture would we have of Paul? Ooh, write him off. Uh, no, that was not how Paul finished the race. You know, where there is the criminal that was crucified next to Yeshua, you would have written him off too. Oh, well, well, I guess he's, he's getting what he deserved. Well, that penalty went out for what he did before, but that was not how he finished out either. 
So again, do we see the world? Because if we look at the world <laughs> like that, just imagine how uh, if we want the Lord to look at us like that, like, ooh, boy, boy, look at, look at him. He is really messing up. Well, I guess just write him off. Uh, or do we see ourselves, do we see other people with the potential that the Lord can see? So that's a good lesson because as we move into the next section with the Haftarah, we'll see <laughs> there's a big disconnect that was, that was happening. Um, one of the, the key things with, the, with um, this particular section uh, historically is that uh, Ezekiel was a very interesting prophet because he was kind of bridging uh, two real chasms of Israel's history with his, his prophetic word coming to him just before the exiles and then also after it. So it's really interesting when you read it because you're getting a world before the destruction and a world after the destruction. So it's like you can see it sliding downhill and it's like you're almost like shouting at it sometimes, no, no, turn around, go back. Because you know what is going to happen later on, but then it goes down, 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 down and falls off the cliff. But it doesn't end that way. Because if you were to stop reading Ezekiel in the middle of it, just kind of shut the book on it about chapter 25, you're like, oh, oh that's forget it. That's a lost cause. Just write it off. <laughs> oh, I guess they're toast. But no, that's not how that book ends either. So just uh, kick things off with a blessing before we get started into this section. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who chose good prophets and was pleased with their words, which they spoke in truth. Blessed are you, Lord, who chose the Torah, Moshe his servant, Israel his people, and the prophets and apostles of truth and righteousness. Amen. So, going into Ezekiel chapter 43, starting in verse 10. As for you, son of man, describe the temple and the house to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the plan. If they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the house, its structure, its exits, its entrances, all its designs, all its statutes, and all its laws, and write it in their sight so that they may observe its whole design and all its statutes and do them. This is the law of the house. Its entire area on the top of the mountain and all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. And these are the measurements of the altar by cubits, the cubit being the cubit and a handbreadth. The base shall be a cubit and the width a cubit, and its border on its edge round about one span. And this shall be the height of the base of the altar. From the base to the ground to the lower edge, lower ledge shall be two cubits and width one cubit. And from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge shall be four cubits and the width one cubit. The altar hearth shall be four cubits and the altar hearth shall extend upwards four horns. Now, 
The altar hearth shall be 12 cubits long by 12 wide, square in its four sides. The ledge shall be 14 cubits long by 14 wide in its four sides. The border around it shall be a half cubit, and its base shall be a cubit round about, and its steps shall face the east. He said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, These are the statutes for the altar on the day it was built, to offer burnt offerings on it, and to sprinkle blood on it. You shall give to the Levitical priests, who are from the offspring of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord God, a young bull for a sin offering. You shall take some of its blood and put it on its four horns and on the four corners of the ledge and on the border round about it. Thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. You shall also take the bull of the sin offering and it shall be, a, shall be burned in the appointed place of the house outside the sanctuary. On the second day, you shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the altar as they cleansed it with the bull. When you have finished cleansing it, you shall present a young bull without blemish and a ram without blemish from the flock. You shall present them before the Lord, and the priests shall throw salt on them, and they shall offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. For seven days you shall prepare a daily goat for a sin offering, and also a young bull and a ram for the flock from the flock without blemish shall be prepared. For seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it. So shall they consecrate it. When they have completed the, the days, it shall be on the eighth day and onward the priest shall offer your burnt offerings on the altar and your peace offerings, and I will accept you declares the Lord. Amen. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, rock of all the worlds, righteous in all the generations, the Almighty, the faithful one, who says and does, who speaks and fulfills, for all his words are true and right. Dependable are you, Lord, our God, and dependable are your words, and not one of your words is ever retracted unfulfilled. For you are the Almighty, a King who is dependable and merciful. Blessed are you, Lord, the Almighty, who is dependable in all his words. Have compassion on Sion, for it is the home of our life, and the one whose soul is humiliated delivers speedily in our days. Blessed are you, Lord, who causes Sion to rejoice with her children. Cause us to rejoice, Adonai, our God, with Eliyahu the prophet, your servant, and with the kingdom of the house of David, your anointed. Speedily may he come and cause our heart to exalt. Upon his throne no stranger will sit, and others will no longer inherit his honor. For by your holy name you swore to him that his light would never be extinguished. Blessed are you, Lord, shield of David, for the Torah, for the divine service, for the prophets and apostles, and for this Sabbath day. For you gave us. Lord, our God, for holiness, for rest, for honor, and for glory. For all this, Lord, O our God, we thank you and bless you. Blessed be your name by the mouth of all the living, continually, forever. Blessed are you, Lord, sanctifier of the Shabbat. Amen. So one of the things that we see here with this bridging over is one particular... <laughs> One particular phrase that is um, 
quite interesting when you see it at the beginning. Um, it's actually just before the section that we read. So if you kind of rewind up to the front part of the chapter as it, as it goes into this, you see something very curious with, in verse um, 7 of Ezekiel 43. Now, I represented this here in uh, three different versions, one of which is the Targum, which is an Aramaic, um, it, you could say it's kind of like the Aramaic uh, NIV of, the, of uh, the time period around the first centuries BC and AD. Um, so this was kind of like the every man's um, Bible, so to speak. And then we also have a rendering um, translation from the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of sort of the same time period, mostly B.C. So uh, Ezekiel 43, verse 7 from the New American Standard Bible. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place for my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. So, Again, this is very similar to what we just saw back in the Torah section that we were looking at earlier, that this was going to be the place where the Lord was going to have his dwelling place. And the Targum represents this um, just only slightly differently. Um, he said to me, Son of Adam, this is the place or the abode of my glorious throne, and this is the place of the abode of the habitation of my Shekhinah, where my Shekhinah dwells among the children of Israel forever. And from the Septuagint, and he said to me, for you have seen me, son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the print of my feet, in which my name shall encamp in the midst of the house of Israel forever. So with the Targum, you see the reflection there, the time period, and you'll see that in a number of um, Jewish reflections that have come thereafter with this uh, reflection of um, saying that you know the Lord, the Lord Himself wasn't actually present, but it was the presence, or they would call it the Shekhinah, also uh, represented just a little bit later in the Targum as the memory of the Lord. We talked about that before with the uh, John chapter one. But one of the key aspects of this is this is the context of it: the presence of the Lord is going to be here at this particular house as it's being re-consecrated. But what do we actually see uh, going on here? And uh, as you see in the first uh, verses of this chapter, we'll just um, start with the first verse of this chapter 43. And then he led me to the gate, the gate forcing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming by the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. The visions were like the visions which I saw by the river Chabar, and I fell on my face. The glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. So this is with the rebuilt temple. So this is after, if you go, like I was mentioned earlier, kind of in the mid part of Ezekiel around uh, 23 through 25, you see the destruction of the city 
the destruction of Yerushalayim. And why? Because the inner part of the city, and especially the temple, was sick. If you see the first 20 chapters of Ezekiel, you'll see these little vignettes, and especially like you'll even see like the the sort of x-ray vision into the temple and what was actually happening inside where the prophet was told to dig through the side, so to speak, to get a prophetic look of what was actually happening inside the temple. And it was disgusting. It was the Lord's house on the outside, but inside it was just full of nothing but paganism. And you see the priesthood on the outside they were supposedly the servants of God, but what were they actually doing? <laughs> they were had their backs toward God, facing toward the um, sunrise. So, it's a sad state of affairs, and and you see through those first twenty chapters of Ezekiel these continual messages that come to the elders, and they're like totally clueless. Why is this stuff happening? They have no idea of that they have slid down, 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 and have continually been sliding away. Now, that's the, the prelude to the section that we were looking at. Now, if you fast forward and go to the next chapter, chapter 44 of Ezekiel. Then he brought me back by the way of the outer gate to the sanctuary, which faces the east, and it was shut. Now, remember what we just had seen at the beginning part of chapter 43. The presence of God came in. And just like what we're going to see again when we get to the end of Exodus, and when you saw when uh, Shlomo, Solomon, his temple dedicated there, that the presence of the Lord came in and pretty much everybody had to get out that was there. You had this same sort of a thing come in with this particular temple that's being described. Uh, the Lord said to me, The gate will be, shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. And as for the prince, he shall sit in it as prince and eat bread before the Lord, and he shall enter by way of the porch of the gate and shall go out by the same way. Then he brought me by the way of the north gate to the front of the house, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house, and I fell on my feet. The Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning the statutes of the house of the Lord and concerning all its laws, and mark well the entrance of the house with all exits from the sanctuary. You shall say to the rebellious ones of the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Enough of all your abominations, O house of Israel, when you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary to profane it, even my house, when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, for they made my covenant void. This in addition to all your abominations. And you did not keep my charge of my holy things yourselves, but you set foreigners to keep charge of my sanctuary. Thus says the Lord God, no foreigner uncircumcised and hard and uncircumcised in flesh of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel 
shall enter my sanctuary. But the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols, shall bear the punishment of their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the house and ministering in the house. They shall slaughter the burnt offerings and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before them and minister to them. Because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel, therefore I have sworn against them, declares the Lord, that they shall bear the punishment of their iniquity, and they shall not come near to me to serve as a priest to me, nor come near to any of my holy things, to the things that are most holy, but they will bear their shame and their abominations which they committed. Yet... I will appoint them to keep charge of the house and all its service and all that shall be done in it. Something strike you odd about that whole thing we just read there in chapter 44? They're so wicked, so then I'm going to appoint them. It's a very, very interesting thing. Now, when you, if that just dropped out of the sky, you go, what on earth is going on? But when you see the first half of Ezekiel, you can see exactly what was going on. And as you read on in chapter 44, they were talking about that they were putting the house of the king right next to the house of the Lord. And basically, it, it, it brings up this interesting picture. I've got this uh, passage here. It's really quite amazing. Um, you see it from the, from the previous chapter, 43, and this sets up what's happening in 44. So if, 43 verse 8 says, By setting their threshold as my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost with only the wall between me and them, and they have defiled my holy name by their abominations which they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. And it is interesting how the Septuagint puts this. Um, so they put, placed my entry by their entries and my doorposts next to their doorposts, and they rendered my wall as if mine and theirs were joined and desecrated my holy name with their lawless acts. So what was the law of the house? We saw it in the end of chapter 43. What was this law of the house? So you're talking about you have to really pay attention, and it focused on the entrances and the exits. And what was the law of the house? That the whole top of this mountain was going to be what? Most holy. Kadosh HaKadoshim. Where have we heard that before? The most holy place. How was the original tabernacle designed? Courtyard, holy place, most holy place. This design... The whole top of the mountain is the most holy place. So what we're saying about the mountain, you got the barrier at the bottom, and then some people can go up a little bit further to kind of maintain the barrier. Then at the top, that's where the high priests can go occasionally. Moshe can be there to be the minister to deliver the words of God back down. Well, you see with this temple, the whole thing is moved up into that level of Kadosh HaKadoshim. So what does that say about what's happening to the people who are coming there? 
there has been a huge transformation of the people that you would thus have everybody to be most holy. So when you still have the distinctions of the people who are ministering, but there is a huge transformation of the people. There is no longer this kind of a detox zone that we've seen both at Sinai and at the mountain, or the, the, in, the, in the Mishkan, the tabernacle. This is a, a situation far different from what destroyed the temple to begin with, because as they said in 43, they put their king's house right next to God's house. As he described it as like, yeah, we were like sharing doors here. You know, and when you when you when you look at that, like we we have the uh, model of the of the um, Jerusalem, and what do you see? Even in the time of David, yeah, you see the abutment starting to move from the king's house toward the Lord's house. So where you see at the time of Herod's temple was a situation where it was pretty much started to be in the time of uh, Ezekiel or leading up to the exiles, where they had really just kicked down the door of holiness, where those barriers around the mountain that was supposed to be there to say, hey, you know, you purify yourself coming up to the barrier, only special people purified to go beyond that even further, and then only a certain part of that is going to go all the way into the presence of the Lord. This is a huge change that's going to happen to all humanity. So that is one of the transformations that you see that's, that's going to be happening with the Messianic age is that you are going to have a situation where everybody, like what, what um, you see in, in Acts chapter 10, where it's like talking about those of the nations being lifted up and to be made holy, you're going to then have the whole of humanity lifted up to be most holy. Because otherwise, how is what we see in Revelation 21 even going to work if that was not the case? If the dwelling place of God is with mankind, and there is no more veil anymore, and there is no more temple anymore, thus, Everybody has got to be transformed in this. And thankfully, we get the picture of it with everything that we see in the tabernacle is all about transforming us and covering over us. And we see with, with Yom Kippur, with the covering of the sins, transgressions, and iniquities, and the promise of the new covenant that he's going to take those, and especially our iniquities, and remember them no more. So when that is fully taken care of, of all the sins, transgressions, and iniquities, it's very interesting that you have the picture uh, of this, the abomination of desolation uh, talked about with the prophet Daniel. And what is said in that is that when he puts an end to what? when he puts an end to sin and everything else, when that is finally accomplished, then what is left? Kadosh akadushim. Yes. Yeah, the author says, at 
in the in the in the kingdom in the in the millennium, man's number will be seven 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 instead of six 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 because we're deficient now because of our sin. It's caused us our number to be six six six. But when it's seven seven seven, I guess then you can go into the holy place. Yeah, and that's why what is re- talked about there in the letter to Hebrews in chapter nine that we go through the veil with confidence. That's not arrogance because you think of what, when it's talked about the new covenant prophecy there in Jeremiah 31, you think of what, so to speak, has been left on the cutting room floor of your life. If your life was a movie, the editing job that the Lord has done through, (laughs) through his covering to have all of that that was against you nailed to the cross and gone. That's basically deleted, Boop, gone. So what then are you to God? You've been elevated. So that's a really a great promise to be looking forward of the great mercy of God and also the warning in that you know, we do not treat the mercy of God and the presence of God as something that is just a flippant, casual sort of thing. It is a great privilege and a great um, blessing and fantastic honor and graciousness that the dwelling place of God wants to be amongst mankind. But we have to think about what has to go away from us in the process. What detox, so to speak, we have to go through to have that happen in the process so that our character looks like the character of the Lord that we see in Exodus chapter 34. That's his weightiness, his gravitas becomes our gravitas. That people will see the great work that the Lord has done with us in the, quote, detox process, and go, wow, we want that too. So when you see the the prophets and they talk about, hey, we've heard the Lord is with you, you know, not just because you've got some sort of name tag, but it is because of what has happened to us in the process. Because you know people that have changed and become quite different are no longer the um, so-and-sos that they used to be anymore. And then, sadly, there's the people who have changed and become more of a so-and-so than they were before. So we know that what can happen when the Lord transforms us in the process. And we can see with the various furniture in the tabernacle, this kind of a process that happens with us so that Our thoughts become like the thoughts of the Lord. What we look like and how we see the world is like how the Lord sees the world. And whether we stink or are a stench before the Lord or whether we are a soothing aroma before the Lord is transformed also. Any uh, last thoughts as we close things out here today? All right, I'll close things out here with prayer. Father God, we thank you and praise you for giving us these words of hope and 
we thank you for showing us a picture of who you are through the Mishkan and through the Mashiach. Father, we just ask that you continue to transform us more into your character day by day. We thank you for showing us how you are doing this. Father, we thank you for covering over our sins, transgressions, and iniquities through the blood of your Son, Yeshua. We thank you in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.